Okay, as, as part of uh, my ministry and in preparation to preach, uh, one thing that I, I love to do kind of week in, week out, one thing I like to do uh, is read uh, older ministers. So I like to read sermons uh, from pastors who have gone before me. The idea of reading sermons from, from men from a, sort of a bygone age, if you like. Why do, I, why do, why do that? Well, alongside uh, their insights that these men tend to have, one thing that I love is how many ministers from yesteryear, uh, how many of them began their sermons stressing the importance of what they were about to say. Now, sometimes it, it almost gets to the verge of being amusing, so you are maybe reading J.C. Ryle, maybe you know that name, or you're listening to some old tape of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and almost invariably uh, these men would begin by telling their congregations that the subject that we come to today is one of the most important subjects in all of the Christian faith. And nearly every week, they would uh, say the same thing, stress the importance of what they were about to do. Well, I might not share uh, much in common uh, with these men other than, yes, very good, uh, uh, other than my bad oldie-worldie dress sense. I might not share much in common with these men, but I can do this. This morning, I can say that the subject that you and I come to today is a subject of great uh, significance. It is a topic of profound importance this morning. Uh, this morning, we come to the topic of repentance and the reality of true repentance of our sin before our God. Now, Perhaps it's the case that all of us in here are, are immediately aware of the stress that the Bible places on this doctrine, this idea of repentance. Are we? Are we aware of the stress the Bible places on repentance? Um, what was uh, John the Baptist's ministry all about? It was a baptism of repentance, wasn't it? What about the content of our Lord's preaching? What did Jesus preach in his time Amongst us, Matthew 4, he came preaching repentance. What was it? You remember Pentecost, that significant moment. What was it that Peter called for from the crowd? Do you remember? What does he say? Repent, repent, and be baptized, every one of you. Perhaps it is that we're aware of the stress the Bible places on this doctrine. But the question is, well, how do we do this? I mean, if, if we're Christians in the room this morning, hopefully we understand that you and I are called to a whole life of ongoing repentance. Your life as a Christian is to be characterized by repentance. And if you are not a Christian, you've you got to understand you must repent. You must repent. If you're going to come to know that the joy of salvation and, and the forgiveness of God, but how do we do it? Like, what does this even look like, repentance? Well, to consider that, yes, today, but actually, I'll let you into a little secret. Today and maybe next week and maybe even, you know, the week after, 
what we're going to do as a congregation is we're going to have something of a, a deep dive into one particular psalm, one psalm over the next couple of weeks. And it's a psalm that's often referred to as the chief of the penitential psalms. So, so maybe you get the idea, do you? It's a psalm that actually for you and for me gives us something of almost an anatomy of repentance or, or, or a model of repentance, a pattern to follow in repentance. What is it? Of course, it is Psalm number 51. You with me? Today, in the next few weeks, Psalm 51, this anatomy of repentance. I don't know, maybe I'm already uh, getting ahead of myself. Uh, am I? Uh, because before we get into the song, and the text of the song, perhaps actually what we ought to do, you and I, is note the historical information that we are given. Do you notice the historical note at the top of the psalm, if you've got it there before you do? Do you see? If you don't have it in front of you, listen to me, and I'll read the historical note. So what is this, Psalm 51? And so we're told, this is to the choir master. So this is, this is to be sung. Uh, but wait, to the choir master, a psalm of David. What's the, what's the time? When Nathan, the prophet, went to him, uh-oh, after David had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, does that do anything? Does that, for you, does that jog your memory? I th think it does. Do we, do, we, do we know what we're dealing with here? So way back in 2 Samuel 11, is it? What happens? We've got David, the king, don't we? Now, where is he? David is at home, everyone. David is at home where his troops are off waging war. And David, from the rooftop of his palace, what does he see? He sees this beautiful woman, uh, Bathsheba, and she's bathing. This is a woman that David summons, David sleeps with, and makes pregnant. And, and uh, wait, there's an issue, isn't there? We all know the issue, isn't there? She's married. So what of her husband? What of Uriah? Well, I think you know it as well as I do, don't you? You know that David tries to cover his tracks. Doesn't he? How does he do it? First of all, he tries to get Uriah to go in to see his wife. Doesn't he? Something Uriah refuses to do when his fellow troops are on the battlefield. That doesn't work. Second thing, what does David do? He tries to get Uriah drunk. And, and, and that doesn't come past. That doesn't work either. What's the last thing that David does? Can, can you really, can you go back? Can you remember it? He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a command. What's the command? The command that Uriah is to be put on the front line. It's a place in the ancient world, not just the danger, is it? It's a place of almost inevitable death. Uriah is killed in battle. Now, if you chart that at this point, it does seem, doesn't it, that David, he's got away with a sin. He's impregnated Bathsheba. There's adultery. There's murder. But he seems to have got off with it. But if you know the story, you know that's not the case. 
Because you go into 2 Samuel 12, God steps in, doesn't he? And God sends his prophet, Nathan, and he sends him to David, and he sends him to David with a story to tell. Now, maybe everyone in here can remember David and Bathsheba. Is it really testing our memory uh, to remember the story that Nathan told David? I wonder if you can remember the story, can you? Nathan tells David the story of a rich man and a poor man. Oh, do you remember the details of it? This rich man, despite having a flock of his own, this rich man takes the poor man's solitary, his one and only lamb, and the rich man takes it and slaughters it, kills it. And this is a a, a story that enrages King David. He's furious. It incenses David until... (laughs) Nathan reveals the truth. You remember, don't you? Nathan looks at David and he says of that rich man, David, you are that man. You are that man. And it is at that point, isn't it, Christian friends, that it happens. It's at that very point that David recognizes at long last the horror of what he has done with Bathsheba. He recognizes the atrocity of what he has done with Uriah. And what does David do at that point? He's cut to the heart and David repents of his sin. He repents before his God and it is a repentance. Now listen to me. It is a repentance for your benefit And for my benefit, it is a repentance that is detailed here in this song, this very song that you have got this morning in your hands. Now, there can be lots of responses to preaching, can't there? On any any given Sunday, there can be any number of responses. Any given Sunday, we can be disinterested in the preaching if we're honest. Any given Sunday, we can be drifting off, uh, I'm sure, as well. I do wonder, though, could it be this morning already, just by the mere mention of this idea of repentance from sin, could it be already that the Holy Spirit of God has pricked your conscience? Could it be already this morning that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind brought to your conscience the reality, wait a minute, of your sin, brought to your mind that the the sheer depths of your rebellion against God. Well, if that is in any way at all the case, will you not follow with me? Will you not come with me as we begin to delve properly into this text, this song of repentance? So you're with me, aren't you? Psalm 51 we're thinking about what does repentance look like? Well, simply put, because of the extended introduction, this morning, simply, I want us to have two headings today as we look at this, the first part of this psalm, two headings. Let me give you uh, the first of those just now. We need to learn, you need to learn, I need to learn that repentance involves a crying out to God. Repentance, if we are going to do this truly, 
then repentance involves a crying out to God. Can we bring up the, the first section, the first two verses <coughs> that we have here? Can, can you look at the beginning of this? What, what do you see? What jumps out at you? What do you notice, friends? I think the first thing that we should notice here is just the utter, sheer desperation of the psalmist. You can recognize it, can't you? Like, what, what does he say? Now, do you feel you can read it uh, in a cold way, but will you not feel the passion and the desperation? Have mercy. Have mercy on me. Now, you can see that that is very different to the tone of some of the other Psalms in the Psalter, can't you? You know, where maybe a psalmist will appeal for, God, have justice. Where is your justice, God? Or, or he'll appeal for vengeance upon his foe or something. You can see it's very different, isn't it? This is not justice. David is not asking for justice. David is asking for, for mercy. He is asking for something that quite fundamentally, he knows he has got no right to whatsoever. So somebody else put it like this. Maybe you'll grasp this. David knows in asking for mercy that he has got no claim on that favor that he begs. So do, do you see it? What is it? It's desperation. It's, it's, it's mercy, God. But almost immediately, you and I can go a little bit further, can't we? Because, come on, what sort of mercy is it? I mean, answer me. I mean, is he asking for the mercy of restored health? Bring back my health, Lord. Is it that? I mean, is it a, a mercy of being kept safe? We'd all say No. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, that it centers around his sin. This is about mercy in relation to forgiveness. And so because of that, what I think we could do is notice the way that, and you can read it, notice the way that he speaks of his evil. Do, do you notice some of the terms there? What are they? Do, do you see it? Transgression? Is that there? Yes. Iniquity? Sin? And so what, what you and I could do is, you know, we could think about the meanings of those different terms, the nuances of those terms. I'm going to be frank with you. I don't think that's what we need to linger on at all. I don't, because you can see what this is. This is a song. So like David is speaking poetically. He's speaking lyrically. Do you see, he's crying out to God and saying, deal with it all. Please, Lord, deal comprehensively with all of, of my wickedness, my evil. And so instead, surely what you and I should think about and notice and focus on is exactly what David is asking for here. To notice exactly what he's asking for God to do. Can I, can I ask you all just to look at it? What is he? Look at the text again. Do you see that there's three terms, three precise things that he's asking God to do? Do you see them? I think my grandfather, I think he would have understood the first of the three things that David is asking for God to do at the end of verse one. My grandfather uh, died when I was uh, really quite a young uh, boy, um, but you know, I look back and I think, you know, 
lovely bloke, my grandfather, from what I remember. I don't know if he ever made public profession of faith. I don't know. Think about my grandfather. The reason I bring him up is that my grandfather worked in a bank in the north of Scotland. Do we know Bewley? Does anybody know Bewley outside of Inverness? So my grandfather was the, the bank manager in Bewley. Key thing is, he was the bank manager in Bewley uh, before the age of the internet. Okay? Obviously. And so I think he would have understood what David is pleading for here. Do you notice the term? Blot it out. Blot it out. You understand that is the the image of there being a debt uh, recorded in a ledger. There are Jews recorded in a, in, a, in a register. Did you see what David is saying? He recognizes and understands that this sin with Bathsheba, the sin with Uriah, this incurs Jews a debt. And so he is crying out to God here. Oh, Lord, please cancel that debt. Please pour ink over that debt. Score it out. Cross it out in in its entirety. But you notice there's blot, but you notice the other two in verse two. Do you see them? What are they? Wash. What else? And cleanse. I can promise you this. You see that term wash? There, that's going to send a, a shiver down all of our spines this morning. Because you know what that term is? Uh, that's the term, the technical term for washing clothes. And I'm pretty sure that uh, none of us particularly like doing the, the laundry, uh, do we? We should are even thinking about it. But wait a minute. Oh, don't we understand what David is saying? Like he, he recognizes that this sin with Bathsheba It's not just the sin, but it is reckoned him. He himself as a filthy garment. He himself, these filthy rags in the sight of God. And he is asking, the only one who can do it, he is asking God, please cleanse me from this. Please wash me completely from this filth. Do Do you not agree when you come to Psalm 51, that this is one of the most heartfelt pleas in all of God's word, in all of the Bible. Now, regardless of who you are this morning, regardless of your situation, I think we need you and I to face facts. Regardless of who you are, I want you to understand that you are in exactly the same boat as David. It might be, you know, not an adulterer, not a murderer in the same sense as David. But surely we can recognize that each of us has a problem of desperate sin in our lives. And so surely here this morning, you see today with an awareness of that sin, the first step that you must take. What is that? What do you do with this sin You know it's there. Search your conscience for a moment. What do you do? Do do you continue to try to just ignore it? 
I mean, with this sin that is there, do you just try and, 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 and just hide away or pursue some sort of escapism? No, you look at Psalm 51. What do you do? What's the first step? You turn yourself, you turn your face towards God and you, even today, you cry out to God. And to, to, to encourage you to do it, can, can I point you to something that is truly marvelous in this psalm? Because as you look at the screen behind me, can you see what is the grounds, or see the grounds, the basis upon which David makes this appeal? I mean, look at it above me. Look at me, look at this. What's the basis for his appeal? What is the grounds of his appeal? Do you see what it is? What does he say? Have mercy, and then, according to your steadfast love. I wonder, in here this morning, do you see why that is so special? David is able to have hope in this cry for mercy. Why? Because of who he knows is God to be. So he's able to have hope because of what he knows God is like. So he's able to have hope even in the depths of his sin. Hope because he knows God is a God of love and commitment to his people, a God, a God of covenantal promise to his people. That brings hope. And you know what it's like in preaching and in sermons. There's so many things flying about. Well, if there is just one thing that I long for you to grasp this morning and to take away into your life is that, is this. Right now, regardless of your sin, God is a God who delights to show mercy. Is that not wonderful? Regardless of your sin, God, if you will turn to him and if you will seek him just now, God really is a God who extends forgiveness. And you just think about that for a moment and you think about how God reveals himself in, in let's say, the Old Testament. Do you remember that, that great pinnacle in Exodus 34 where God is about to reveal what he is like to his people? And then everyone's on tender hooks. What is God like? Listen to it. It's the first words. You see what God says? He says, I am a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Wait a second. He goes on. What else do we hear? God says, now think about Psalm 51. God says, I'm a God who forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin. And then if you think about it, how does God reveal himself in the New Testament? In that, you know, probably what is the most famous of all the parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Don't we love it? What happens in that story of the prodigal son? You know what, the prodigal son, maybe that's you this morning, is it? The one who's run away from their heavenly father, the one who really is, even as a Christian, living in a far off country of rebellion. But what happens in the story? The prodigal son repents, turns to go back. And my question for you is, how does the father in that story respond? What does he do? The son turns back, wayward, comes back. Does the father reject his child? Does the father deny the prodigal son? What does the father do? Do you know the story? He runs to his child. Think of that. He embraces the prodigal son. Don't you see? Don't you see it for yourself? 
the father runs and embraces the wayward yet repentant son. Friends, God is a God who is ready to forgive your sin. If you know that story with Nathan, if you know the story with David, you'll know what Nathan said next. David repented and Nathan said, and God has put away your sin. Are you not ready, friend, to take that first step in repentance? Are you not ready to cry out with that publican in Luke's gospel? We know it, don't we? Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we see the first step of repentance. Repentance involves a crying out to God. The second of the two headings, and briefly, is that repentance involves a confession of our sin. Confession of our sin. (coughs) That word that I've just used there, the word confession, is a word, isn't it, that we like to band about in the life of the church an awful lot. Confession. I'm sure all of you have noticed that in our liturgy at St. Peter's, in the, the structure of the service, each week, in fact, in each service that we have in this church, uh, at one point in the service, either myself or Will or one of the elders, uh, they will lead us as a congregation and lead us in a prayer. And what is part of that prayer? It's prayer of confession, where the elder leads the congregation in acknowledging our sin, right? Admitting our sin before God. So there is, what's that word that we're so, uh, we're so familiar with? Confession. I think it's really important for us to notice that Psalm, as you look down at it just now, Psalm 51 is more than two verses long, isn't it? You see the point that I'm making? It's not sufficient to end at a crying out for God. No, to this appeal for mercy, if you look at the text, you'll see that to that, David adds in verses 3 to 6, he adds this rather detailed section of confession. So from verse 3 to 6, there's confession of sin. So what I want to do just now, and again, I repeat briefly, lest you panic. What I want to do is just to mention some features of this repentance. Why? That you, that you might follow suit. That you and I might look at this prayer of confession and even today, and even at this hour or this afternoon, that we might confess our sin properly and properly before our God. So let me just mention one or two things. First, I want you to notice that David confesses the reality of his sin. Can we put it up on the screen or is it already up on my screen? See, that's efficient. That's tremendous. You're ahead of me. So verses three to six there. I've got a confession of my own to make. Okay. Um, When I was a young Christian, when I first came to faith like 20 odd years ago, Um, What we've got there in the first couple of phrases, these were words that I would repeat maybe or recite in prayer, and how we sometimes quote scripture, 
the confession I have is I would use these and probably not really understand what I was saying. Maybe we can find ourselves being guilty of that. We quote scripture, but maybe we're not quite sure what what we're doing. What is it in verse five? What does he say? I know my transgression. And maybe it's an Americanism. I'm not sure. You see what he's doing? He is truly owning his sin, isn't he, before God? So there has been self-inspection, hasn't there, from David? And there's been self-examination. And now, with thoughts of what has happened with Uriah in the back of his mind, now in prayer before God, David is utterly transparent. Do you see There is absolute honesty here. You might have noticed as you study this psalm yourself that five times, five times, he speaks particularly personally. Do you notice the repetition of my throughout the psalm? My iniquity, my, my, my sin, my transgression. You might also notice as you scan that, that he says that God is absolutely justified in reckoning David a sinner. Do you see what's going on? That unlike you and me so often, he is not making excuses now for his sin. And he's not trying to blame somebody else for his sin. He's being honest about this, transparent before God. And don't you agree? It's almost like, as you move on there, isn't it almost like there is a defect in his sight spiritually look what he says I I know my transgressions and then he says and my sin is ever before me do do you see what I mean by deficiency in his sight he's so haunted by what he's done he's so aware of his sin that his iniquity follows his gaze wherever he looks in his life friends if you and I are going to come back to restored fellowship with God, that intimacy, that delight we have in God, or if you are going to come to Jesus Christ for the very first time this morning, look at the psalm and see what you must do. You have to confess to God honestly your sin. Second feature is that David confesses the focus object of his iniquity and I I, I wonder if you'll concur with this that I think as we move on here we get to verse 4 do you concur that we get to something that's quite tricky quite difficult look at what David says now please think about it he's praying to God and says God against you what's the next couple of words against you, you only? Have I sinned? He says to God, against you only. What do we feel like crying out there? We feel like, how can you say that? I mean, especially with our sort of modern sensibilities, the 21st century Scotland, don't we want to say, but what about Bathsheba? I mean, what about Uriah? How can you say you only have been offended? But I think we get it. Don't we understand it? We can see that this is hyperbolic language, can't we? 
can we see that, that, that David is speaking, what did somebody say? David is speaking not exclusively, but he's speaking ultimately the idea that when all is said and done, you know, at the end of the day, it is God. Ultimately, it is God that is offended by these actions. And I hope genuinely, genuinely pray that each and every one of us understand and grasp firmly the logic of that. Do you? Every one of us in this room, a creature, a creation of God's hand, every one of us, you could say, belonging, a belonging of God. And every one of us created to act in a certain God-defined way. And so I'm asking you, what is it? When we deviate from that, what is it when we deviate into especially moral transgression? What is that but treason against the one who's created us? What is it but rebellion against this holy creator God? Friend, again I ask you, is the Holy Spirit reminding you of your sin this morning? Then see it for what it is. Do not dare think of that as just some imperfection. Don't even think of it as just something that offends the people in your life. Recognize it for what it is. Your sin is an offense to an infinitely powerful, infinitely holy and righteous God. And then the last thing to notice in this confession that David confesses the depths of his sin. I think here, as we end this morning here, we come to this area, we come to an area here where I think alongside sexual ethics, we come to here an area where you and I as Christians stand at greatest distance from the prevailing views of the society around. Can I say that again so that we've got it? So we come to now an area where I think alongside sexual ethics, we're at greatest distance from the views of the world. What is that? What is it? You'll see it in verse five and I'll read it to you. Now think about what it is that David is saying. He says, behold, O God, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now can everybody please get the next line with me? David says, he confesses, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, do we see what he's saying? Please don't think that David is saying that he was born out of wedlock. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's not what he's saying. Nor please think of it that David is blaming his mother or blaming his upbringing for his sin as you and as I, as we love to do. We love to bring our upbring, uh, blame our upbringing for our sin. That's not what David is doing. What is he doing? He is before his holy God confessing the sinful nature that has brought forth this atrocity with Bathsheba and Uriah. Can you see that with me? Can you see that David is confessing that all is not well in our hearts and he is confessing that it is not as Dundee in the 21st century would have you believe. 
So it is not that most of us are good, <laughs> but there's a few rotten apples. Not that. And, and confessing that it is not that your sin is just a, you know, there's a few imperfections in your life, but it's in amongst lots of truth and lots of goodness that's, that's there. No, David is confessing before his God that his heart is broken with sin that he's predisposed to evil, that he has inherited this corruption. He's confessing that his heart is a fountain. And it is a fountain that has been poisoned in his nature. And because of that, that fountain of his heart, it brings forth nothing that is unpolluted by sin. Nothing that is untarnished by sin. And then I would ask you, why do you think David is mentioning that here? Why does he mention it there? Would you say to me, well, he's making an excuse for his sin with Bathsheba? As though he's saying today to God, I couldn't help it. I am a sinner by nature. Do you think even for a split second that he's making an excuse? That is not what he's doing. David confesses his sinful nature to highlight how far removed he is from godliness. He speaks of his inherent sin to show how undeserving he is of divine forgiving grace. Friends, are you in here this morning and you recognize I am a sinner? I need to repent of these sins. Then what you must do is be honest but be honest about how deep that sin goes. The fact that you are, listen, you are a rebel against God. And that is by your very nature. And we have to end. And so you know how it goes. Sometimes we will apply the text to Christians, will we? And then sometimes we apply the text to some who are unbelieving. And I ain't going to do that today. Because I think, in all truth, to one extent or the other, there is not one single person in this room who does not need to follow David's lead. To one extent or the other, there is not one person in this place who does not need to get on their knees and to confess their sin before God. So what I want to do is simply to remind you of David's hope. Can you remember what it was? His hope is found in the steadfast love of God. And think of it, linger on that love. Such is the steadfast, committed love that God has that he has sent into the world for his people, his only beloved son. Now, wait a minute. What was the language? What is it that David is crying for here? Do you remember the three terms? What was it? Wash me. Cleanse, please me. What was it? Blot it out. And friends, what has the Lord Jesus Christ done for his people? You know it, don't you? By his blood spilt at Calvary, he has provided for you, Christian friend, cleansing, washing from sin. Wait, 
What do you read in Colossians 2? Do you know it? I wonder if my grandfather, if he knew this, what was the blotting out? Colossians 2, Paul tells us this, that Christ Jesus has for you, his people, he has canceled the record of your debt. It has been blotted out. And how? How? What does Paul say? Your debt has been nailed to the cross itself. Friends, we are sinners. But God is a merciful God. So I honestly long for you to leave this place reciting a great promise that God gives you. I long for you to recite this verse as you leave and as you go home and you say it to yourself time and time and time again. 1 John 1 verse 9, you know it, but think about it and wrestle with the words. In fact, say it with me if you know it. Listen, think about it. 1 John 1 verse 9, do you know it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you not agree? What a God. What a God of grace. Friends, let's bow and let's pray.